Well, good morning, everyone. It is for me a tremendous joy to come and to have the opportunity to share with you this morning. I want to thank Pam for her graciousness and helping make this opportunity uh, possible. But I also want to say a special word of thanks to her. Uh, as she has stepped up and played such a vital, critical role in this time of transition between Pastor Bob and Pastor Don. So, Pam, thank you so much. Um, I, as Pam said, I'm the Director of Missional Engagement for the Florida Conference, and uh, I am coming this morning to share with you a little bit about, uh, about missions. I mean, John Wesley... Uh, famously said, the world is our parish. Now that's a missionary phrase if ever I heard one. And so this morning I thought I would tell you all a missionary story straight out of the Bible, which is a wonderful book, friends. In fact, this story is the most poignant missionary story of the whole of Scripture, the tale of old Jonah the man who succeeded and failed, the strange, mysterious case of a reluctant missionary. Now, you all are in the middle of a sermon series on the spiritual life, and towards the end of the sermon, I'm going to be sharing with you some questions I want to ask you to reflect on as you plumb the depths of how God is at work in you and how you can cultivate and develop that spiritual relationship with Him. Now, as we start this morning, uh, I want to say that those questions come directly out of the book of Jonah. Uh, and it's going to be our scripture lesson for this morning, and I invite you now to listen to God's word coming from the fourth chapter of Jonah, verses 1 to 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by, by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in, in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So where in the world should I begin to tell the story of Jonah? Well, I just have to say at the outset, and this is important for me to say, forget about the whale. I mean, just go ahead and forget about it. Uh, frankly, it doesn't say whale. It just uh, says uh, fish. Uh, and we'll come back to it. Uh, the, the whole instance, though, about the whale is really a side issue in the unfolding of the panorama of this particular story. There is, after all, no other story in the Bible quite like it, and scarcely another in all of literature that could match it for its breadth and vision. It is the story of a very, very big God 
and a very, very little man. You almost have to laugh at him. In fact, you do laugh at him. His soul is so cramped, so circumscribed, so pathetic. That's exactly the right word for it. He missed the point completely. And what makes this book so funny, so sad, so laughable, so tearful, so so completely comical on the one hand and yet painful on the other, so incredibly poignant is that Jonah never did get on board. He never did get with the program. When the book ends, he is still out on the hillside whining and complaining and moping to God at war with himself and everybody else in sight. His preaching converted thousands and every single one of them he roundly despised. He succeeded in one sense, and yet he failed, because he never allowed his heart to admit what his head already knew was true, was that his enemies were not also God's enemies. The scope, the splendor, the... the Ultimately, the liberation of that big idea, one of the most important in all of Scripture, never got through to him. Let's look at him, if we may, this morning, because there is something I believe here for everybody. Was there ever a more unlikable prophet than Jonah? A Will Rogers one time said that he never met a man he didn't like, but he never met Jonah. <laughs> I don't believe even he would have liked him. Was there ever a prophet less ready to do the job that God had assigned him to do or less pleased when of all things it was a resounding success? You talk about your basic, mean-spirited, prejudiced personality. This person makes Homer Simpson look like Mother Teresa. <laughs> it's all there in four compact chapters. You could read it in 10 minutes. In fact, when you get home this afternoon... I'd like to recommend that you do exactly that. It made Jonah sick to his stomach that God would save the Ninevites. I mean, it made him sick. And he sputtered out his complaint to God. Listen, God, you can't let the, those people get away with the things that they've done to your people. It's not fair. It's not kosher, Lord. Zap them. That's what you ought to do. This is an ugly little man, so filled with hate and venom, so parochial in his outlook that he could see no virtue whatsoever beyond his own national borders. What makes him more than just a stereotype, of course, what makes him more than just a straw man or a cartoon figure is that as much as he hates to admit it, he has a deep suspicion that he just might be wrong. And that, of course, is the point of the story. You see, the story in the book of Jonah is exactly opposite of this man, Jonah's own pinched personality. The real hero of this book is not Jonah, but rather it is the unidentified, nameless writer of the story who, in a period of post-exilic Judaism in a time of intense nationalism in his own country had a vision of God that was broad and expansive. 
Here the writer created a kind of parable, if you will, about a cramped personality, a luminous missionary story to proclaim God's incredible inclusiveness. We like to say that we're a missionary people. We're monotheists, and as monotheists, we believe in one God, and the one God is the God of all people, and not one person, not one group of people is left out. Where does an idea like this one come from? I mean, we don't find it throughout the entire part of the Old Testament. We see it, its beginnings really in the call of Abraham, <coughs> and it's developed through the prophets, but it isn't until we get to the New, New Testament when this concept of inclusion begins to break forth. It develops slowly, but when it does, it catches like wildfire. Let me invite you to walk through this story with me this morning as we allow the author's dramatic skill and theological insight to emerge in its retelling. Once upon a time, there was a prophet named Jonah who received a call from God to go and preach to the Ninevites. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, just a little bit north of present-day Iraq. But Assyr the Assyrians were the arch enemies, the implacable foes of everything that Israel stood for. Go, Jonah, and preach to the people you hate the most. So what does Jonah do when he gets the call? He turns around and runs in the opposite direction as fast as his chubby little legs will churn. You need a map, really, so why don't we put a map up there and you'll, you'll see that, that Jonah is in Judah on the, uh, on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean and Nineveh is kind of to the northeast across the Jordan, far away. And what does Jonah do when he gets the call, but he turns like a speeding bullet and heads in the other direction all the way to Joppa where he boards a ship and then sails across the Mediterranean to the town of Tarshish, which is in modern-day Spain, for crying out loud, <laughs> as far as you could possibly go in the opposite direction in the known world of that day. I wonder if you have ever run away from something that God wanted you to do. Jonah, you see, was filled with dread when God asked this of him. You don't warn people like that. You punish them. You don't notify them. You lay them out. You don't send them a preaching mission. You send them fire and brimstone. That's what they deserve. Jonah just wasn't sure whether God would go along. If you do it my way, God, I'd go in a heartbeat. I'd be charmed to be the bearer of the good news of their demise. But you know what people are saying about you, God? And this is what frightens me. They're saying you've gotten soft in your old age, that mercy is clouding your judgment. They say you are not as exclusively pro-Israel as you once were that you're not just on our side, 
for goodness sake, what if I preach to them and they repent? Have you thought about that? Count me out. No way. Jonah's agony was because his better self and his prejudice were at cross purposes. The greatness of God was that even though Jonah ran away, God didn't give up on him. Jonah may have given up on the Ninevites, but God hadn't given up on Jonah. Remember that. It's an important part of this story. Remember when you are trying to run away from something that God has asked you to do, the relentless hound of heaven, as Francis Thompson said in that famous poem, with those strong feet following, following after. That was God. He let him run, but he stayed right there with him. Now, before we get to the storm on the sea, I want to say a word about the city to which Jonah goes to board the ship. It's the city of Joppa, and it's not the only place we find it in the Bible. It's also found in a story in the book of Acts when the apostle Peter is in Joppa up on the roof of a tanner, and he has a vision there, and there's a sheet that gets lowered down. And in that sheet are animals, both clean and unclean, And the Spirit of the Lord says to Peter, rise and eat. And Peter goes, heavens no, God, I can't do that. You know your Bible. I mean, I can't eat unclean animals. And the Spirit of the Lord says to him, what I have made clean, you shall not call unclean. And this particular story in the book of Acts, written by, the, by Luke, the same person that wrote the Gospel of Luke, is really a pivotal point in the story of beginning to open up the mission of Christ in the world, not just to the Jews, but to all the world. And scholars believe that this might have been a literary device used by Luke to help people, especially Jews, to hearken back to the Old Testament prophet Jonah, and to remember this story of God's breadth of vision and awesome inclusiveness. Now, back to our story. No sooner had Jonah gotten on the ship than a storm blew up, and when they were wondering whether someone might have done something to make God angry, Jonah fessed up and said, yes, God asked me to do something I didn't do. And when the sailors heard that story, they picked up Jonah and they threw him overboard. And almost immediately the storm subsided. And here is where the fish comes in. It's the only part of the story that some people remember. Now the story doesn't say whale, it just says fish. And an exaggerated fish story is not uncommon even in a city like Largo today. I mean, I've known fish stories out of congregations that I've served that are harder to swallow than this one. Do we have to believe it literally exactly as it's recorded? Is that a requirement to be a good Methodist? Well, I don't want to press it, and I don't want to undermine anyone's biblical confidence. Maybe it did happen this way. 
But I would also want to say that there is nothing in the membership vows that requires that you accept these as absolute historical facts. The whole story is really a parable, and that makes the parts of it a little bit easier to swallow. Frankly, I wish the author had left this part out because the intent is not to stretch the credulity to the breaking point. The purpose of this story is to point out God's unrelenting pursuit of God's mission in the world. It is the size of God's persistence, not the size of his whimsy. That's the point being made here. And there's nothing fishy about that. At any rate, Jonah knew that he couldn't escape. He was not going to be able to get out of it. Even if his heart wasn't in it, he would go and he would preach. And he would just hope that they wouldn't listen. Can't you picture him in your imagination arriving at last in Nineveh? That great city battered and bruised, dragging his feet, digging in his heels, biting his tongue. The very embodiment of resistance as he plotted through the city of his enemies from one end of town to the other, operating out of duty, but not out of compassion mouthing the words, but grinding his teeth, staring into their faces, but despising their very hearts. What kind of preaching is this anyway? It's only eight words. That's how long his sermon is. Only eight words. And it basically says, 40 days and you're done. <laughs> That's all he said out loud. And inwardly, I think he was thinking to himself, I hope they don't listen. I want to see this dump burned to the ground. But the unthinkable thing happened. Jonah's deepest fears, his darkest, most dreaded suspicion materialized. A revival swept the city from person to person, from block to block, from neighborhood to neighborhood, from the lowest peasant all the way up to the king himself. It spread like wildfire. It was Pentecost in Nineveh. Everybody in town put on sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> and you got to listen to this. <laughs> Are you ready for it? It says that even the animals did. Sackcloth. Isn't the Bible just a wonderful book? Doesn't that break you up? Can't you imagine little baby chicks and lambs and calves running along, running around in sackcloth? The whole thing was thoroughgoing and complete. The result of God's determination, even through reluctant preaching. All living in the metropolitan area of Nineveh turned their lives in the direction and fell on their knees in penitence before the sovereign God of the universe. A sermon of eight words grudgingly composed and petulantly delivered, had saved the city. The people heard the voice of the Lord even through the despicable personality of an odious proclaimer. Destruction of Nineveh? Are you kidding? The sweet savor of revenge against 
his hated foes was not to be, and he knew it. God was going to spare them. Of course he was. And the prophet was livid with rage. And the passion that had been missing in his previous preaching erupted in his prayer. I knew it, Lord. I knew it. I sensed it all along. Isn't that exactly what I said back in my home country? I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And by the way, that's almost an exact quote out of the book of Exodus. I mean, this preacher knew his Bible, even if he had missed what the Bible was trying to teach him. If you are not going to let me watch you reap vengeance on my enemies, by God, I'd rather die than live. But one more chance, one more plea, the climax of the story, the ever-reaching but restrained patience of God. He sends a plant, a fast-growing plant, a vine to grow over Jonah's head, a vine to give him shade from the scorching sun out on the hillside. But you're not going to believe this. <laughs> the Hebrew identifies this plant as a castor oil plant. <laughs> Isn't that precious? A perfect prescription for a man of this disposition. Castor oil. If only Jonah had eaten the plant rather than camping out underneath it. I mean, that's where the real whimsy shows up in this story. At last, Jonah had something he was thankful for. Not much, but something. Something had touched him positively. The shade and the protection of that little vine from the heat of the sun. How does the text put it? So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. It's the most hopeful thing written about him in the whole book. In fact, it's the only thing. At every other point in this story, Jonah is negative all the way through. And everybody else, the sailors, the Ninevites, even the whale, <laughs> even the fish come out smelling better than he did. This is the first inkling of decency and humanity since we met him. But alas, a worm comes and attacks the plant overnight and it withers. Easy come, easy go. And with the withering of the plant goes Jonah's withering optimism. That, that morose old moralist resumed his previous complaining, bracing himself against the onslaught of the wind and the sun. He goes back to pouting, saying once more, it is better for me to die than to live. And the judgment of God, the final words of this book, so tender and yet so devastating, listen to the closing words of the book of Jonah. Jonah, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not work at all nor make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity the people of Nineveh, that great city where there are more than 120,000 people that do not know their right hand 
from their left and many animals. Silence. The curtain drops. The story is over. And the point is made. This just may be the finest missionary story ever written. Surely it's one of the most intricately crafted. In the persona of the anti-hero, we see everything that a missionary, a real missionary, ought not to be. Is there anything of pertinence for us here today? Maybe when we are tempted smugly to identify what we want with surely what God must want, maybe it's worth remembering that even today the missionary may sometimes be the mission field. Maybe it's good for us to be reminded out of the wisdom of the past that God doesn't have favorites among nations or peoples. There are no pets among God's children. And out of this story, I'd like now to share with you some questions for you to reflect upon, for you to think about as you explore the depths of your own spiritual relationship with God. Here are three questions to consider. Number one, do I disobey God in anything? Number two, do I grumble and complain constantly? And number three, is there anyone I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold resentment toward, or disregard? And if so, what am I going to do about it? At a time when we may be tempted to limit the grace of God, to say that it is only for some, and when we say that, we normally mean it's for us and not for all, comes a tale of a God whose love and redemption is for all the world. In the midst of the parochial temptation to limit that grace and thereby imply we can limit our love, comes this funny story of a grumbling curmudgeon who misses God's global, even cosmic encompassing of every part of creation. May this story make its timeless point again that the love of God, undiluted and unending is for all, for the deserving and the undeserving, the just and the unjust, Jews, Ninevites, Americans, Muslims, Mexicans, rich and poor, black, white, gay, straight, female, male, us, and them. That's it. It is for all, and all, friends, means every single part of God's good creation. And that is very good news indeed. Will you pray with me? Oh God, help us first to catch the vastness of your purpose, your all-inclusive love, and then, because we can't help it, help us to engage in your redeeming work of justice and mercy, redemption and healing for all the world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.